invite you, church, to take your Bible and go to Revelation chapter 2. Today we are looking at three letters, letters to Smyrna, letter to Pergamum, and the letter to Thyatira. Father in heaven, we pray that you now, by your spirit, would help us to hear what we wouldn't hear unless you move. And so we pray that you would grant us focus, grant us attention, grant us repentance. We need to hear, we have ears. Help us to listen, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I love about the city of Indianapolis is the uniqueness of the various communities around our beloved city. You don't have to travel very far until you realize, wow, I'm still in the city, but I'm in a different place. In some cases, that difference in culture or dynamics are fiercely protected and even defended. I remember when we started planting churches in 2015, it was striking when we began to realize how different the various communities around the city are. For instance, Fishers is not Greenwood. Carmel is not Castleton. North Indy is different than Pike. Those cultures and those communities are unique in their strengths and in their weaknesses. They're unique in their challenges and in their opportunities. The spiritual needs and the struggles, they aren't the same in every community. In fact, I remember we used to try and hold all of our church plants together by preaching the same text. And remember being in a meeting and one of our pastors saying, I'm sorry, but that text is not what my people need right now. And we actually had to part ways, allowing each church to select their own text, which actually was a wise decision because we began to realize that the Bible's the Bible, but different communities require the Bible in different ways. So the question is, what would Jesus say to Carmel? What would he say to Speedway? What would Jesus say to Greenwood, to Broad Ripple, to Brookside, to Lawrence? Each community has a context, a history, a struggle, a challenge. They're all part of the mix. Every church and every Christian in every age needs to wrestle with how do I live faithfully where I am, in my community, in my church, in the moment in which I live. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first of the seven letters. We focused on the church at Ephesus with a view toward asking ourselves, what's something that I don't do today that I used to do when I first came to Jesus? I challenge you to consider doing one thing that was similar to what you did back in the early days. Maybe you had great intentions when we were leaving the service two weeks ago and you didn't do anything. That's okay. Try again this week. It's not too late. Maybe you got busy, but that letter is still the letter. The first love, first affections are still an issue for us to consider. Remember that the church at Ephesus was a church with great doctrinal orthodoxy, but they had lost something of their first love. It was a letter for us to listen to carefully. But there's more. Today we look at Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. And as we examine these three letters, I want to identify central themes for each of these churches. 
for the purpose of asking ourselves, so how does the content for Smyrna apply to us? How does the content for Pergamum apply to where we are? How does what Jesus says to Thyatira work out in 2022 at College Park Church? The letter to Ephesus was deeply applicable, but so are these letters as well. You see, we don't have one letter to College Park Church. We actually have seven letters. And there's something to learn from all of them as we try to live out the gospel in our community, in our age, and in our day. So there's a lot to examine with these three churches. I'm just to remind you, I'm preaching a sermon, not teaching a class. I'm gonna leave some things on the table. If you want to learn more, there's plenty of commentaries and study Bibles and all the rest to help you understand all of the nuances of all the things that are here. But here are the main themes that I think emerge with these three churches. With Smyrna, we see a church where a theme of suffering and endurance is highlighted. With Pergamum, we see conviction and compromise. And with Thyatira, we see passion and passivity. So what I wanna do is look at all three of these churches through these thematic lenses to try and see what it is that we might learn. Let's begin with Smyrna. Look at chapter two and verse eight. We find here in Smyrna, a church that is suffering and enduring. Verse eight, to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember, each of these letters start with a description of who Jesus is. And this church is unique from the others in that it's not critiqued in the same way that other churches are. There's no direct instruction regarding what they need to change. Now, surely there were some things that they needed to grow in, but it's likely that this was a church that was really suffering, and so Jesus writes to them for the purpose of encouragement, to strengthen them in their suffering. We see in verse eight that Jesus describes himself, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Can I just remind you that the theme of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about the man behind the curtain. And verse eight describes Jesus with words that connect to his sovereignty. He's the first and the last. Connects to his power over death, who died and came to life. In other words, what Jesus is helping them to understand is that he himself has conquered the unavoidable and ultimate foe of mankind, namely death. He's attempting to give them hope-filled words. He's reminding them right at the beginning, I rule over everything, including the thing that you're most afraid of, namely death. Listen, church, it's as though Jesus starts at the beginning and says, listen to me, you're gonna win. You're gonna win. So go for it. Work hard. Be faithful all the way to the end. Imagine a coach in a huddle who knows somehow that the team at the end of the basketball game is going to win. And he says to them, guys, listen to me. Go out, set good picks, make good shots, because we got this. We are, not we might win, we are going to win. Jesus reminds us that at the end of the day, we're victorious. There's some of you, that's the whole reason you came to church today. 
because of the hardship of your life or the difficulty of what's been going on, you need to be reminded today, I know your life is hard, but can I just remind you, it's just a matter of time, and we win. Notice where the letter turns next. The church is given assurance about what Jesus knows. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The church is given assurance here that Jesus knows. He knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty. He knows the slander. He knows how hard it is to follow faithfully. He knows the limited resources that they have to help themselves. He knows what's been said about them. This is designed to be comforting, and it must have been. Because I'm sure that you know that part of the deep pain of suffering is the private nature of it. It's the fact that you're hurting and you don't know either how to talk about it or if anyone else knows how, deep, how deeply you're hurt or how hard the circumstances are in your life. And when the pressure is on, there can be an ever-increasing descent into loneliness and discouragement because nobody really knows. You can't share everything that's happening. You get doubts and frustrations that are internally overwhelming. And sometimes just even talking about them isn't helpful. And if you're not careful, this hardship can cause you to slip into a pattern of despair and disillusionment where you feel trapped in quiet pain. And in the middle of that, Jesus enters the equation and says, I know how hard it is. I know the tears. I know how handcuffed you feel. I know what they've said. What a comfort to know that Jesus knows all about it. One of the deep struggles in suffering is the injustice of it all. It's probably not hard to imagine someone in this church wrestling with, this is really hard, or struggling with what they've said is so untrue. And yet here is Jesus who describes himself as the first and the last, the one who was dead, who's now alive, is telling the church that he knows. He knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty. He knows the slander. Reminds me of a hymn from the 1800s. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. The song goes like this. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There's not an hour that he's not near me. No, not one. No, not one. No night so dark, but his love can cheer me. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about my struggles. He will guide till the day is done. 
Because there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Can I remind you that that has been true, it will be true, and it is true today. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. Mom and daddy knows. Grandma and grandpa, he knows. Ministry leader, he knows. He knows. Take specific note about what Jesus says regarding the slander they've experienced. Notice what he says. The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, don't miss this, a synagogue of Satan. Whew. That must have landed like, that's a fastball. A synagogue of Satan, what does this mean? Well, James Hamilton in his commentary helps us understand what may be happening here. He writes this, the Romans had granted the Jews an exemption from required participation in the Roman imperial cult. In other words, the Jews didn't have to take part in Roman idolatry, but everyone else was required to participate. And obviously Christians would not want to participate with the Romans in their idolatrous festivals and celebrations. So the Jewish slander in view here probably has to do, listen, with Jews denouncing Christians to the Romans. And if Jews began denouncing Christians to the Romans, arguing that they're not Jews at all, then the Christians who refused to participate in Roman idolatry could face political retribution. Wow. So these believers, listen to this, we're dealing, listen carefully, we're dealing with people who claimed to be spiritual, people who claimed to be religious, who were using the political and cultural system to hinder the work of the gospel. That's why Jesus calls their gathering place the synagogue of Satan. Just mark it down and be warned that sometimes it's the most spiritual people, the most religious people who are actually behind the persecution of God's people. What's the solution? The solution is not that their suffering is going to get easier. Notice that he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The promise here of receiving the crown of life is another way of describing eternal life. It's reinforced by what follows. He says, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what, he sa- what the Spirit says to the church is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So there's something about eternal life that's in view here. So what do we learn from Smyrna? Smyrna is called to endure hardship. They're called to be faithful as they suffer. You could could boil down the entire message to this church with maybe one word, faithfulness. But here's my question about that word. How does the word faithful land on you? 
Your dog's faithful, right? Old faithful. If I'm honest, that word historically has not landed on me very well. In my youthful arrogance, I would hear an older pastor say, brother, I'm just trying to be faithful. And I'd think, that's it? (laughs) You're just trying to be faithful. Like, I get it, but that's your goal, just faithfulness? It seemed at times like it's an excuse for stagnation or maybe being old-fashioned. But the older I get, the more wisdom I see in those words. Faithfulness is probably underrated in the short term, especially in our culture where what's, what's hip? What's hip is new, innovative, disruptive, change agent. Those are the words that seem to be in vogue. And yet when it comes to suffering and hardship, The Bible calls Christians to be faithful. Some of us may need to give up on our need to fix something or change something and just realize it's not just the best you can do, it's the best you can do, which is simply to be faithful. You may not be able to fix it, but you can be faithful. You may not realize that what's gonna happen in your life is actually gonna get worse, but you can still be faithful. The thing in your life may continue to go on longer, and the hope isn't that it's going to end, but rather that you can be faithful, that you can play the long game, that you can embrace the need to endure suffering. For some of us, the singular goal that we need to embrace is simply this, I am going to be faithful even though this is hard. I am not gonna quit, I'm not gonna throw in the towel, I'm not gonna let my attitude go south, I am gonna maintain my posture and I'm going to outlast the devil, I'm gonna outlast my suffering because at the end of the day, I know the one who is the first and the last, the one who is to come, and he told me I'm gonna win, so I'm gonna stay at my post. Smyrna, Smyrna. Suffering and endurance. Next church, Pergamum. Conviction and compromise. This is another great church with a particular blind spot that we need to examine. Their strength and weakness is connected to truth. The church at Pergamum was known for conviction and they were known for compromise, which is why the description of Jesus in verse 12 is so important. To the angel of the church at Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember that sword was coming out of his mouth. It's a powerful image. It's an image of judgment. Verse 13, notice again, Jesus knows, I know where you dwell and where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. He knows that they've been faithful. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So there's something about where they are that relates to the presence of opposition, where Satan dwells, 
And apparently someone named Antipas was martyred there. What's going on in Pergamum? Well, according to Greg Beale, a commentary, commentator on the book of Revelation, he writes this, Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a Roman ruler and the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor. So Pergamum is like cult central for emperor worship. The city proudly referred to itself as the temple warden. Temple was dedicated to Caesar and worship of him there. Life in such a political religious center put all the more pressure on the church to pay homage to Caesar as a deity and refusal to participate in that kind of worship meant high treason to the state. So here's what's happening. The people in Pergamum are facing direct political pressure. They're having to decide, how do I reconcile Roman citizenship with heavenly citizenship? Can I be loyal to Christ and the empire of Rome? Some of you know what, some of you know what that feels like. But the challenge isn't just a political pressure, the challenge is also cultural, because Pergamum was not only home to emperor worship, but it was home to various pagan cults or deities that were central to the life and the culture of the city. And you need to think of these deities and these, these, these sort of cultic worship centers, not like we think of a cult, like a marginal group that believes crazy things. Like if you say to someone, that's cultic, that's like strange and weird. This was central to the city's Ethos, this is how people thought the world worked with the exchange of ideas and thoughts related to deities that controlled the universe. This, this, this deity thing was as central to the foundation of Pergamum as some of the core values relate even to the understanding of what it means to live in the United States, like the things that define us, like independency and freedom, like th that, that's the kind of thing that would have been central with Pergamum, but related to deities like Zeus and Athene and Dionysus. In fact, the city had a symbol with the serpent god of healing, the snake, you know, on the, the medical seal, the snake? Well, well, that symbol made it onto the markings of what characterized the city, and as a result, there were many challenges trying to figure out how do I live in Pergamum with all of this social pressure to pay homage to these gods that people believed controlled life and the economy, and sacrificing to these gods, pledging your allegiance to these deities, these other acts of veneration would have been expected in order to be a good citizen or to participate in the guild that your craft was associated with, and that's the way you did business. And if you didn't pay homage to these deities, you were out, and there's no way that your family can survive, and Christians are trying to figure out in Pergamum, how am I a Christian without praying to these gods that I don't believe in? And yet, here's this church, deeply convictional. He, he commends them because they're holding fast even though there's been a martyr in their midst. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have there who hold, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So what happens here is this is a church that apparently was figuring out how to remain faithful in a very difficult environment. They were really convictional, but hear me, their convictional stance was blindly selective. Apparently, they were tolerating people who were compromising. And two groups are mentioned. One, those, hold, those who held the teaching of Balaam and those who held the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We're not exactly sure about the Nicolaitans. Wish we knew more about who they were and what they taught. We know their teaching is problematic, but we do know about the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament figure who caused the people of Israel to stumble by tempting them with sexual exploits in their worship of the foreign gods. So Balaam couldn't secure a curse over God's people, so instead he used sexual temptation in the context of pagan worship to sidetrack the people of God, and that worked. The enemy has not changed his strategy, beloved. Balaam became a proverbial name for someone who, according to one commentator, quote, a false teacher who for money and influence began causing believers to enter into relationships that were compromising. Again, Greg Beale is helpful here. He writes, what may be included here are trade guild festivals involving the celebration of patron deities through feasts and sometimes immoral activities. And the refusal to participate in such activities could result in economic and social ostracism. Therefore, there was much pressure to compromise. And just as Israel was influenced to fornicate both sexually and spiritually, the same was true of Christians in Pergamum. So the warning here is clear and the invitation is blunt. The warning is they were allowing compromise to take root in their lives and in their church and for the sake of economic or social or political power, the church was finding ways to justify their idolatry and their immorality. Aren't you glad that doesn't apply to us anymore? If right now you feel a little tension in your soul, you're getting the point of this letter. The promise here that he offers is eternal reward, hidden manna, a white stone, a name written that no one knows. All these promises are connected to the future home of Christians. It's as though Jesus is reminding them, I know where you live, I know about the problem, I know where Satan dwells, I know that you're faithful, but you have to maintain your understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and watch out that in your convictional commitment, you don't let the back door of compromise sneak in. We would be good to ask ourselves about the extent of our conviction and compromise. Let me ask you, where might you be tempted to justify choices that tip too far in wanting to be accepted by people who don't even believe in Jesus? Some of us may need to cool it on trying to be cool. Some of you, you your mom wouldn't believe what comes out of your mouth. But because everybody at work talks a particular way, you've started talking a particular way. 
In terms of the things that you're looking at and watching, if you think about where you've been over the last five years, you may need to take a step back and realize I'm in an environment where things have been normalized that just shouldn't be normalized. In the context of the relationships at work or with people that you think well of, is it possible that you want their approval more than you want the approval of Jesus? One of the dangers is, is that sometimes, and I say this cautiously and with a great deal of love and sobriety, sometimes convictional people can hide compromise because they over-convictionalize one thing because their conviction in this category makes them feel like it's okay to be non-convictional in this space. Be careful. Be careful. This is complicated, it's challenging. I can't apply everything in your life specifically. Some of these things, I don't even know all the context and the dynamics. I wish I knew all the things related to Balaam and the Nicolaitans and all of that. But can I just encourage you to think, are there areas right now where I'm compromising? And without being overly conservative or overly legalistic, I think there may be some of us who need to take a careful look and say, you know, I need to cool it. Thyatira, last one. Passion and passivity. The fourth church in the letter, the third in our examination today is a church that's marked by incredible passion, but also a dangerous passivity. So Pergamum's marked by orthodoxy and conviction. Pergamum, or Thyatira rather, is marked by passion. Again, notice Jesus, the words of the Son of God, this is verse 18, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is probably related not only to the examination of Jesus in the church, his eyes that are blazing, but also burnished bronze. Bronze was a familiar product in Thyatira. Verse 19, notice this list, it's incredible. Notice their passion. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and your latter works exceed the first. This church is on fire. Like, this is an amazing list. There's not a whole lot more that you'd want to be said about a church. It's, she's commended. Notice, her latter works exceed the first. This, this is a direct contrast to the church at Ephesus. But while other churches are commended for their orthodoxy and their conviction, this church is commended for her passion and yet there is a problem, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idol. The problem is connected to a woman named Jezebel. At least that's what she's called. That's probably not her actual name because I can't imagine anybody is calling their daughter Jezebel when she's born. You call your cat Jezebel, but you can't call a little girl Jezebel. (laughs) Actually, don't even call your cat that because Jezebel's a nasty name. Jezebel was infamous for inducing Ahab and the entire nation to worship Baal. 
She had inordinate influence, negative influence on the nation of Israel, and she was a strident opponent of the prophet Elijah. And what happens here is, according to verse 20, the church is tolerating this woman and her teaching. More specifically, she is teaching and seducing servants, my servants, Jesus says, to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. So the concern here must have been something similar to what was happening in Pergamum, which would make sense because they're cities that are close together. But at the same time, we could see this in a more broad brush because of the word and the name Jezebel to connect with Revelation 18 where the harlot is a metaphor for the sinful embracing of the world and its system. So apparently, what we think is going on is that Jezebel is convincing people that their passivity with the world was somehow okay. Again, I don't know exactly what that is. You just take that for what it is, and we gotta figure that out in our generation. What does that look like, where the passivity with the world and its system, the world in its essence is broken, and there are good things in the created order, but you and I know very well that the whole system of the world is used by the enemy to convince Christians that they're missing out. And there are far too many believers who have put way too much on one side of the ledger in regards to their focus on the world and its system. For some of you, if I can be blunt, this is about the only time in the course of your week where you really think about spiritual things. And that's dangerous. The things that you think about, the things that you read, the things that you watch, the things that you talk about, if you took the totality of your spiritual content of what's going on in your life, for some of you, it may be way out of balance. And this message today may be a, hopefully, a gracious invitation for you to realize, oh, be careful. The command here is for the church to Hold fast. He says, therefore, verse 16, repent. Oh, sorry, I'm wrong text. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her son or I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. And then he does a little carve out, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. This must be something as it relates to this woman is teaching, I've got special knowledge, or there's this group of people, but here's what I really want you to know. Be careful when anybody somehow begins to communicate to you that they have special wisdom. Test that with scripture. The deep things of Satan. He says, verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers will keep and who keeps my works unto the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star 
All of this is eternal promises related to the reign and rule of Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What do we do with this? Let me give you three just very brief applications. He who has an ear, let him hear. Three words. First word is faithfulness. Faithfulness. I wanna call us today to be reminded that when the world is falling apart, don't underestimate the priority of everyday obedience to Jesus Christ. Make it your goal, church, to outlast the devil. Don't neglect or minimize the slow, steady, consistent approach to daily godliness. You may never be cool, you may never be hip, you may never be flashy, but you can trust the Lord. Why don't we make faithfulness cool again? Second word, wisdom. Faithfulness, wisdom. I haven't used this word yet, but it needs to be front and center in our lives because we need wisdom to not allow our conviction to blind us to compromise. We need wisdom to know when one, a passion in one area is deceiving us into passivity in another. Every generation has to wrestle with this reality. Where's the line? Where's the line? Some of you need to pray for wisdom at work. You need to pray for wisdom in our culture. You need to pray for wisdom in relationships because you need to think where is, there's a line somewhere and you gotta figure out where. Where is your no-go line to say, I can't do that? And finally, affection. Don't forget that the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. So what is one remedy to the problems that we face, it is knowing that our hearts could be set on loving Jesus and reminding us to keep our eyes on him. The surest remedy to compromise or passivity is to keep our hearts aflame in love for Jesus. Because there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There's no friend, no savior, no king, no master like the lowly Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, help us as we now apply this sermon to where you've commanded us to go, which is to the Lord's table, and to be reminded of important and eternal truths, things that serve as the bedrock of our lives and opportunity, even now, for us to renew our relationship with you as we're reminded of your death, burial, and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.